The following message is by a guest speaker at Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So as many of you know, for the past month or so, we've been working our way through the order of salvation through the series entitled Saved. And we've been unpacking the question, what happens when you believe? And for the last few weeks, Dr. Steve has spoken on the topic of election, that God purely by his grace has chosen us to be saved. Um, regeneration, that we are made spiritually alive and given a new heart, heart by God, though we did not seek him. And last week, conversion, which is turning from sin in repentance and turning to Christ in faith. And so, in continuing it in our series today, I, I want to speak on one of the most powerful, and yet, in my opinion, one of the more underappreciated doctrines of the Christian faith, and that is adoption. Now, adoption spoken of in spiritual terms is very similar to the way we understand it, I think, in the physical world. Wayne Grudem defines it simply as an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. Meaning, when we come to faith, we are ushered into an entirely new relationship with God. It's a relationship marked with the intimacy and love that can only be found inside a family. About a year ago, on my Facebook news feed, I came across a picture of a man from a series called Humans of New York. And this is where ordinary people from New York City are randomly profiled and asked to share their story. And I had come across a number of these before, but this one with a white-haired gentleman really struck me, and so I saved it, and I'd like to read it for you. He says, My mother passed away when I was very young, and my father passed away when I was eight. I don't remember my mother, and I only remember little things about my father. He always wore a three-piece suit. He was a florist, so we always had flowers in the house. But everything else I had to learn from people who knew him. They'd tell me that he loved baseball. They'd tell me that he loved color. All the things that they told me seemed very bland and abstract. So I was forced to fill in the gaps with my imagination. Then one day, when I was much older, my cousin told me, You are just like Herman, you know. You have the same sensitivity and humor. He'd be so proud of you. And it was the greatest compliment I'd ever received in my life. It made me very emotional because I felt for the first time that I had the approval of my father. And it made me realize that I'd needed that approval. What an honest admission. It just amazed me that this elderly man who was orphaned at the age of eight could many decades later share so openly about this very personal and yet profound longing to know his father. And all he had were these faint memories, these vague recollections, until someone who knew his father intimately came along and, and revealed not only what his father was like, but how he shared many of the same characteristics of this father that he hardly knew. There's something that's so raw about how he transparently conveys this aching desire to not only know his father, but to receive his unconditional love and approval, even in the twilight of his own life. 
Where does this longing for a father's love originate? Speaking from my own experience, for many years, I, I had a very strained relationship with my own father. and I was a very mediocre student in junior high, just pretty much all B's and C's. My sisters got all straight A's. and My dad signed me up for Sylvan Learning Center and, and Kumon, this Japanese math program, and he was worried about my future. And I remember feeling in many ways that I wasn't good enough for him. And of course, now I know, you know how much he loves me and our relationship's entirely different. But at the time, I struggled with my identity. I struggled with very low self-esteem. And yet I remember these very salient moments in my life when I could sense that he was proud of me. I remember working at McDonald's and the chicken McNuggets in the back and seeing my dad walk up and order some food and knowing I was back there just being very proud of me. couldn't stop smiling. When I bought my first car, a Honda Accord, after I got my first real job after college, and he was sitting in the back seat just smiling, and I could see him in my rearview mirror, and I remember those moments. And it made me think, why are all of us hardwired with this profound longing for a father's love and acceptance? I'm not trying to marginalize the role of a mother in a child's life. Mothers play an irreplaceable role, but I find it strange that no one ever looks at someone and says, wow, that person has mommy issues. No, they, they say he or she has daddy issues. Because there's this implicit understanding that growing up without the unconditional love of a father has a way of manifesting itself in very ugly ways, even well into our adulthood. You know, one of my favorite musical artists growing up was George Michael. Don't judge me now. Believe it or not, back in the late 80s and early 90s, he was the very essence of cool. And he sang this song called Faith. That was the name of his album. And I thought he was a Christian artist because of that. But never mind the fact that in the music video, he gyrates his buttocks like his pants are on fire. But looking back at some of the lyrics of many of his songs, I'm struck now by how deeply they explore our deepest insecurities, and how accurately he reflects upon the human condition. And there's one song he sings called Father Figure, in which he's wooing a woman who has never experienced the love of her father. And the song is about how he proposes to fill that gaping void. By the way, if you have a daughter, the thought of a guy singing this song to your little girl is like your worst nightmare. But he sings this, he says, that's all you wanted, something special, someone sacred in your life. Just for one moment to be warm and naked at my side. Sometimes I think that you'll never understand me. But something tells me together we'd be happy. I will be your father figure. Put your tiny hand in mine. I will be your preacher, teacher, anything you have in mind. I will be your father figure. I have had enough of crime. I will be the one who loves you until the end of time. Do you hear what he's singing? He's promising that he will understand you. He will accept you. And he will love you until the end of time. This love is supposed to come from her father. But what if a man cannot fill this hole in our hearts? Not even George Michael. What if our own earthly fathers cannot even fill that void? What if God put that hole in our hearts so that we might long for, we might seek, we might find him, our heavenly father?
the God of the Christian faith is unique from all other gods in many ways, but especially in this way. Only in the Bible do we find this persistent picture of God as our Father and we as his beloved children. No other religion that I'm aware of speaks of God in this way. In Islam, we find Allah to be a capricious divine whose love is really reserved only for those who obey and who serve him. You see, Islam actually means submission. And so you must submit and live in line with the laws of the Quran. In Hinduism, we find a God who is both everything and everywhere. It's pantheistic. A deity who is formless, abstract, an eternal being, devoid of any personality, devoid of any real attributes. But only in Christianity do we find a God who is described not just as a father, but as a loving father who loves and who desires to be loved by his children. A father who calls us into relationship with himself and who has made a way for us to become his own. 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. J.I. Packer, in his book Knowing God, writes this. He says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. You see, this picture of God's desire to be our Father is most powerfully portrayed, I think, in the way that the Bible describes this idea of spiritual adoption. I'm going to break the rest of this message out into four parts, and we're going to move fairly quickly through them. First, we're going to look at the picture of adoption. Why is it in the Bible? Then the process of adoption. How does it happen? Then we'll look at the privilege of adoption. What does it mean for me? And lastly, we'll look at the proof of adoption. How do I know that I am his? And so first, the picture of adoption. With all the metaphors at his disposal, why does the God of the universe invoke a picture of himself as a father? and us as his adopted children. Was he grasping for an illustration here, or is he conveying something much greater? I think we need to remember that God was a father before any of us men ever were. So when he describes himself as a father in the Bible, he he didn't create the divine example to explain the earthly one. The heavenly father was, is, and always will be. Rather, God created the earthly example, daddies, to reveal to us the divine one, himself. And I believe he did this because he wants us to understand who he is and how he loves us. Now that said, due to sin, every father on earth is really just a broken and incomplete picture of our perfect father in heaven. But through having children as fathers and through being fathers as men or even mothers as women, we're given these small glimpses of our ultimate father whom we were designed to long for, to love, and to be in relationship with. I know I'm anything but a perfect father. My kids would be the first to agree. There are times when I've shed tears in repentance because I 
wish I could take back things I've said and ways that I've spoken to my children. But I, I've learned so much about my Father God from being a father myself. And despite all of its many joys, this to me has been fatherhood's greatest reward. And nearly ten years ago, when Caleb was almost four and Timothy was one, I, I began to make some connections between experiencing love as a father and understanding the love my Heavenly Father has for me. And so I wrote this down, and bear with me if, just, if I can read it for you. It's called The Father's Love, and I think it applies to mothers as well. Sometimes the deepest truths are learned through the simplest means. A dear friend once told me a long time ago that when you become a father, it will open up a new chamber in your heart that you didn't think was possible. I couldn't really understand what he meant, but I'm beginning to now. You were given a capacity to love that, frankly, you didn't know you were capable of. I love my sons. I love them more than myself. I didn't think that was possible. When I go into Caleb's room late at night, I'll just sit and stare at him sleeping. It's freaky, I know. Then I'll tuck him in and whisper, I love you. I don't think he even hears me, but I want him to dream about my love for him. I want him to know me, and I want him to know how much I love him. He can't do much for me. He's only three and a half years old. Perhaps grab a TV remote when I'm too lazy to get up, or a pair of socks. But nothing I can't already do for myself. But he loves being around me, and I love being around him. He'll wake up early in the morning just so he can see me before I leave for the day. He'll come to the bathroom, and after I shave, he'll want to shave. When I put on my belt, he always insists on doing the last part. When I sit on the bed and put on my socks, he'll sit next to me and do the same. What can I say? He wants to be like me. And every morning as I walk out the garage door, he says the same thing. He says, Appa, be careful. Don't bump into any cars. And I watch him at the door as the garage door is going down, and when it's halfway down, I see him scurry back upstairs. He only came downstairs for me. When I come home from work, he runs at me at full speed, and laughing, he gives me a collision hug. And no matter how hard a day it's been, it always makes me smile. There's nothing greater than seeing your own children happy especially when you are the source of their joy. I've learned so much about God's love towards me since becoming a father myself. I realize more and more his love towards me is not conditional upon what I can do for him because, frankly, there's nothing I can do for him that he can't already do himself. He just wants me to know him, to know how much he loves me. He wants me to wake up early and meet him and strive to be more like him. He wants me to be happy, and I am only completely happy in him. And I am certain it brings him great pleasure when he is the source of my joy. You know, Matthew, Matthew 7, 7.11 says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more 
How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see, our Father in heaven loves us so much that he's given us the ability to recognize his love for us even in the way that we love our own children, even in the inadequacy of that. And through parenthood, he's saying, you know that love you have for your child? How much more do I love you? How much more do I want to give every good gift to you? So if God has gifted you with a child, thank him not only for that child, but for the deeper understanding you now have for God's love for you through that child. God is good. But why does God need to adopt his children? I mean, if we were all created by God, aren't we already his children? The Bible tells us that though we are all created by God, the truth is we are all spiritual orphans. And that is why we are all desperately in need of adoption. But we're not orphans because God has left us. We are orphans because we have rejected our Heavenly Father. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And this is why the Bible refers to the unadopted as sons of disobedience, as children of wrath. In the famous parable of the prodigal son, if you recall, the prodigal son not only rejected his father, but he essentially wished him dead by demanding his inheritance because this was the only way a son was to receive his inheritance in ancient times. He basically said, you are dead to me. And effectively, he orphaned himself. And before we judge him too harshly, we should remember that we too have rejected our Heavenly Father. But what is remarkable is that the Gospel tells us that God is seeking to restore that broken relationship through adoption. How do we enter into this special relationship with our Heavenly Father? How do we go about being adopted into God's family? What is that process? Well, I think it's important to point out that like any earthly adoption, the child really has no say in the adoption process. See, God is the initiator, and it is purely by His undeserved grace that we are saved from certain destruction as orphans, and we are brought into his family. And so it's nothing in you, it's nothing about you. It's not because of you that God saves you. It is only by his grace, and you enter into this relationship purely by faith. You have to believe that he loves you. And so the great sin of Adam and Eve was not that they ate a piece of fruit. The root of their sin was that they did not believe that God truly loved them. They believed that he was holding out on them, and that is why they disobeyed. They wanted to live autonomously, separately, independently from God. And this belief is ultimately what drove their behavior. And so I want to ask, what, what do you believe? Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that your sin and your sinful nature has alienated you from being in the presence of a holiness that would consume you in an instant? Do you believe that out of his love, God has made a way to bring you back to himself and redeem you as his child? John 1.12, it's a really remarkable verse. It says, but to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, 
nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, God doesn't redeem us in the way that we think he would. Here we find all the other ways in which man has erroneously attempted to reach God and failed. It says, look, it's not who we're born, not of blood, meaning, you know, we cannot become children of God through our family lineage. It doesn't happen hereditarily. It's not about your caste. It's not about what your parents believed. It doesn't matter if you're the son of Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. It says we cannot become children of God through the will of the flesh, meaning it's not a matter of disciplining yourself to do good works so the good outweighs the bad in your life. You don't reach God by your personal achievement of a moral standard. And it says we cannot become children of God through the will of man. This means your entrance into God's family is not conferred upon you by any human being be it the Pope, be it a prophet, be it purgatory, it it cannot happen. It is only simply given to you from God, by the grace of God, and through his son Jesus. Jesus is the one who has made it possible to have a relationship with God, the Father, and to enter into God's family. Uh, I open today with a story of Herman's son from uh, Humans of New York. And do do you recall how he came to know his father and what he was like, it was through his older cousin who apparently knew his father intimately. And his cousin is the one who provides for him this vivid description of the father he did not know, and for that he is so grateful. And I think in many ways, Jesus came to earth and he played that same role for us, for all mankind. When Jesus came, he in a sense demystified who God the father was. And he reveals the true nature of the Heavenly Father to the world. And not only that, he says, look, if you want to know the Father, know me. If you want to see the Father, look at me. I and the Father are one. And in John 14, 6, he makes this incredible statement. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. You see, God himself is a father. He's our heavenly father, but he's not only a father. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches us that God is one God made up of three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. So again, God doesn't invoke this paternal picture because he needed a convenient metaphor. The Father and Jesus' Son and the Holy Spirit all existed And all were in perfect relationship from eternity past. And the point I'm sharing this is this. God didn't need us because he was lonely. He didn't need our companionship. He was already in perfect community within himself. But here's what's crazy. To effectuate the adoption for us, God offered up his own son. This was the redemption price of bringing us into his family. His son paid the price so that we might be restored into relationship with the Father. And it's because of this incredible act that Galatians 3.26 says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You know, by the way, I want to mention that when the Bible speaks of adoption, it, it sometimes uses the term sons, but that doesn't mean in any way that this is exclusive to men. Okay, rather, it's using a generic term to describe both men and women, uh, just like you know, all men and all women are referred to as mankind. And so that said, the thought that God the Father would use his son to redeem us as his children is is crazy. 
Because to me, the single greatest horror of the cross was not the physical pain that Jesus endured. You know, I think really in Gethsemane, Jesus wasn't real focused on, oh, those nails are going to be really sharp. Lord, save me from those nails. I think the horror that Jesus endured in Gethsemane was the thought that the Father had to turn away from the Son. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And an indescribable union that was bonded for all of eternity in that moment was broken on that cross between the Father and the Son. And think about that. Why did this happen? Why did this have to happen? So that the eternal love shared between the Father and the Son can now be ours. The gospel teaches us that all the love that the God, God the Father shares with his Son from all eternity is now being poured into us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And imagine that. This is one of the great privileges of adoption. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, and the Father spoke and said, had said this, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And he now says that to you. He loves you. He's pleased with you. He delights in you. He sees his son in you. And I heard a story um, of a young couple who had great difficulty bearing children uh, for many years, and so they adopted a boy. And shortly thereafter, they became pregnant with another boy. And um, years later, the mother had her two sons out in the playground, and another woman she didn't know very well but who knew her boys were adopted asked her, so which one is your son over there? And she just replied, they both are. And the woman again asked, no, I mean, which one's your real son? And the mother graciously responded, they're both my sons. And this insensitive woman, she continued to press this mother, and she said, no, I mean, which one's your biological son? And the mother paused, and she said, you know what? I don't even remember. I don't remember. And that's the glory of the gospel, that when you believe that Jesus is God's son, God sees you no differently from his own son. He doesn't even remember the difference. He doesn't remember your sins. He doesn't remember who you were or where you've been. And unlike the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus doesn't stand at a distance with his arms folded, like bitter, jealous, that you know, we receive an inheritance that we didn't deserve. It's quite the opposite, actually. He offered up his own life to restore our relationship with the Father. So what else does this adoption mean for me? What other privileges come to me as a child of God? In Galatians 4, Paul writes something remarkable. He says, But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So through God, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Paul is telling us that because of Christ, everything has changed. We are now adopted as sons. 
and daughters. And now our hearts, which once groaned for redemption, cries out with joy, Abba, Father. And Paul's using a word here, Abba, that would have shocked his predominantly Jewish audience. Because in that day, Jews believed, and even today, the name of God is to be so revered that it should not be spoken, lest they take it in vain. So what Paul says is quite mind-boggling, I think. He says, we can now call God Abba. Abba. This is a term actually translates very well in many different languages. Baba, Appa, Abba. It's an Aramaic term that denotes intimacy, approachability, love. We can come to God safely, confidently, and as we are. And additionally, Paul tells us that because of this adoption, we're no longer slaves to sin. We are beloved sons and daughters. This is our new identity. And knowing this, believing this, remarkable truth changes everything. J.W. Sanderson Jr. says, Fear produces the obedience of slaves, but love engenders the obedience of sons. See, we no longer need to live in fear or bondage because we've entered into the security of his family and we can live in his perfect love, which casts out all fear. We are heirs of a great inheritance in him. And this has all come about because of the love of God embodied through the giving of his son, which we receive and we believe by faith through the work of his spirit. And it's the work of his spirit that gives us understanding of who we are and who God is. You know, one of the best things about being a father to a little girl, I have a seven-year-old now, and is you get to watch Disney movies over and over again. It's awesome. Um, no more college football. <laughs> I could do a casting call, I think, on every part of the movie Frozen. But growing up, my seven-year-old daughter, Sela, she, she loved this movie called Tangled. I'm sure you, you're aware of it. If you're not familiar with the story, it's about a long-haired blonde girl named Rapunzel. And she lives in a tower hidden deep in a forest by her presumed mother, Mother Gothel. However, unbeknownst to her, that's not her real mother. She doesn't know it, right? And in this pivotal moment of the movie, Rapunzel realizes her true identity and to whom she really belongs. So let's watch. So this is my favorite part of the whole movie. The power of Disney and the gospel. Because I think this epiphany that Rapunzel experiences is such a picture of what it, coming to faith as a child of God because it shows a number of things I think we find in the gospel. And that is one, that the king is in search of her. Her father, though she's lost. And two, that she's enslaved. She's living in bondage her entire life, unbeknownst to her. And three, that she realizes her identity as a child of the king, which gives her the courage to confront the lie she's lived under her entire life. And to me, this is the proof of adoption. This is the evidence that we are adopted. And in being led by the Spirit, we're given courage to live out our newly discovered identity and faith. That we understand who he is and who we are in him. Romans eight fourteen says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
And so that's the mark of someone who is a child of God. We're led by the Spirit of God. And it's the Spirit who assures us that we are His children. The Holy Spirit seals our faith in His love and secures our trust in His goodness. And by being led in His Spirit and by growing in His love, we begin to imitate our Father, much like my son Caleb would imitate me. And Ephesians 5 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. We take on His characteristics. We grow in our love relationship. And His image in me, which was once grossly distorted by sin, slowly becomes a clearer picture of who he really is. I am bearing the image of God. I am bearing his image. And I'm reflecting him to the world as I become more like him. And this is why Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before others so that we, we, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Just as God gave us the family unit to be a picture of himself to us, he desires us to be image bearers of his glory so that we can faithfully picture who he is to a watching world, to his glory. And so lastly, the evidence of proof that we are adopted is not found only in the way that we relate to God on a vertical level, but how we relate to each other on a horizontal one. What I mean is we're all in this church. All of us are adopted sons and daughters if we know Jesus. This is why none of us look alike. Thank God none of you look like me. But I love so much the diversity that's found in our church. I know that predominantly uh, we're mostly make up, you know, Asians. But I love the fact that we have Filipinos, Indians, Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, Cambodians, Caucasians, Mexicans worshiping together every week. And I love the fact that some of us are the products of mixed marriages. Some of us are in mixed marriages. Some of us are adopted children. Some of us have adopted children. And all this to me is a glorious picture of the unity and diversity that's found in God and the spiritual adoption we have in Christ. You see, the world cannot understand this kind of unity in the midst of this kind of diversity. Only God, who loves us all, could bring us together in this way. And so in this new season of our church, I pray that we will come together, that we'll remember that we all come from the same place. We all belong to the same family, only because we belong to the same Father God. And we are to love one another as God has loved us. This is how the world will know that we are his. So I'm going to close today with a brief video about um, the Dennehy family. It's a family that halfway to reaching the American dream, they chose to do something radically different. They adopted several special needs children from all over the world. And as you watch this, I want you to think about the gospel. I want you to consider all the parallels that you'll find between the adoption of these broken children, orphans, into this family, and God's adoption of us into his. Powerful, isn't it? I think I could show that like 10 times and that would be good for a sermon. Such a beautiful representation on earth of the adoption that we find in heaven. These children were born with profound needs, missing limbs, rejected, forgotten. They, they were doomed. 
And for no other reason than the grace of Mr. and Mrs. Dennehy, they are one by one redeemed. They're rescued. They're brought into this family. And they're given a new hope, a new life, a new name. Did you hear what the mother said? She said, you give a person unconditional love, and they blossom. Isn't that what we all desperately need? And the father, he said, there's, there's no physical thing you can buy that is actually going to give you real joy and happiness. And the pure joy that will come from a rescue and a ransom of a child's life is probably the most satisfying thing that you can imagine. You see, through their own experience of being adopted by God and experiencing the love of the father, they've been compelled to love and to adopt these children. And, and to me, this is truly one of the most profound and living examples of the gospel come to life. It's adoption. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up this time. I'm going to ask us to, to bow our heads as we reflect on some of these magnificent truths. I think some of us in this room, we have a difficult time understanding love from a heavenly father because we've never really experienced love from our earthly father. The picture that God designed has been broken in your life. But I want you to see the grace of God in this because I believe God can redeem even the brokenness of an absentee father, an unloving father, an uncaring mother. And he will use that to create within us a profound longing for a better father, a greater father, a heavenly father, so that we might come to him. And he's calling us into his family and as his own. He loves you. He delights in you. And some of us are living as a child of God, but really only in name only. You've not yet truly given yourself over to your identity as a child of God. And so you live in fear instead of faith. And you know him as your God, but you don't know him yet as Abba Father. There's nothing that we can do for him that he cannot already do himself. He does not accept us or receive us because of anything we can do. Simply because of who you are in him. He's calling you into his family. And as his own, he loves you. He delights in you. Believe in his love for you. Believe that he has made a way through his son. A great price he paid, and now he offers to us freely. So that we might become children of God. How great, how great is the love of the Father. 
Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this idea, this doctrine, this truth of adoption. It's hard for us to believe that we can be loved unconditionally, and yet that is the cry of our hearts, each one of us. And we submit to you, Lord, that we um, were broken, we're doomed. We cannot save ourselves. We've orphaned ourselves because we have rejected you in our sin. But you've chased after us, you pursued us, and you're calling us into your own. And we praise you for that. And so, Lord, give us the faith. Grant us the courage to know and to live in the identity as a child of God. Sealed by your spirit. Made possible through your son. We thank you. We thank you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.